Well, hello again, FAC. Uh, Pastor Mike here. It's good to be with you in a very digital sense once more. Uh, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9, where we're going to pick right off where we uh, left off last week. As you're turning there, I just want to take a moment to encourage you to be praying for your leadership here at FAC. As the uh, county begins considering reopening um, from this uh, pandemic, uh, our attention and prayers have now turned to decisions that we need to make here at FAC in that process. Uh, There are a lot of important decisions at hand as we consider not just when to begin in-person ministry, uh, but also how to uh, do in-person ministry again. Um, We must understand that while there will be a day that we will gather again in person, and I'm looking forward to that day, um, it may look significantly different than what it used to be. Now, I don't uh, mean to add more anxiety to your plate. That is not my intent. But uh, instead, I mention that so that uh, you would join us in prayer. In God's Word, James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And so you, would you be praying for us and with us as we seek wisdom from God, who is an everlasting fountain of wisdom? Um, we're going to look for wisdom today as we open up God's Word. And so uh, let's look to Scripture And we're going to read that famous story of Saul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And as we journey down this road with Saul, I'd like to provide a map, if you will, of where we are going in the text. I've actually taken the passage and I've divided it into four different sections um, today. And I want to give you those up front just so uh, you can follow along and keep track of where, where, where I'm going with the text. And so this is what it looks like. The, the four sections in verses one through two, we have Saul's crusade. Verses three through nine, we have Saul's conversion. Verses 10 through the end of the passage and 19, Saul's connection. And then finally, in the middle of that last passage, verse 15 to 16, Saul's commission. And so if you will, follow along with me as I begin reading from Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. 
And he has seen a vi- in a vision a man named Ananias c- uh, come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray before we begin. And Father, I pray that you would in this moment be gracious to us and bless us, that your face would shine upon us. In this moment, as we look to your word, Lord, would you make your way, and your saving power known to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was in middle school, my older brother Joe gave me my first guitar. Uh, He had taken his old guitar and refurbished it and passed it down to me uh, as a gift. This thing was really cool, and I felt like I was the stuff when I held this in my hands. Uh, Middle school Mike thought that he could impress all the ladies with it, but I quickly realized that it wasn't much use if I didn't know how to play. And so I began taking guitar lessons at a local music shop in the town that I grew up in. And uh, incidentally, it was the same shop that my brother had taken guitar lessons many years prior to that. My guitar teacher's name was Curtis, and I was excited to find out on my first day of lessons that Curtis was actually a believer. Now, my older brother knew Curtis from his time there, uh, from the years prior, and uh, I told my older brother how excited I was that I uh, had a guitar teacher who was a Christian. And then my older brother said something to the effect of, well, you must be talking about a different Curtis, because the Curtis I know is not a believer. We must be talking about two different people. You see, what had happened was sometime between when my brother received guitar lessons at this uh, music shop and when I received guitar lessons many years later, Curtis had become a believer, and his the fruit of his conversion was evident. And perhaps as I spoke with my older brother, he saw what Curtis's life was like before he met Jesus and uh, recognized him as someone who was far from God. You know, he's thinking this is someone who has no interest in knowing the will of God. Even as I share that story, I'm sure that there's some people that are coming to mind right now in your own life. Friends and family who you think are far from God, who are so adamantly against God and his word, so adamantly against Jesus that you would say that they're the last person on earth who... Uh, would become a disciple, a follower of Jesus. 
Or perhaps you've stumbled across this video by coincidence. Or maybe someone is forcing you to watch and you sit here and say, actually, I'm the one that you're describing, Mike. I have no interest whatsoever in Jesus. If that's you, I would encourage you actually to keep listening because this character of Saul is someone that you may be able to relate to. Um, You see, if we were to take a time machine back to the first century and put ourselves in the shoes or the sandals of those first century believers, we would understand that Saul of Tarsus is the poster child for active opposition against Jesus. The person who epitomizes the rejection of Jesus is Saul of Tarsus. By way of reminder, we've actually already met, we've met Saul before in our journey through Acts. We met him back in Acts chapter 7. As Stephen, the disciple, was stoned for his faith, those who hurled rocks at Stephen uh, laid their outer garments at the feet of Saul. And as Saul watched on in approval, he used this moment, this martyr dumb of Stephen as a catalyst to launch a crusade against all believers. One believer wasn't enough. And so in the beginning of Acts chapter 8, we actually find Saul going door to door, probably accompanied by some armed guard just ripping believers out of their homes and throwing them in prison. The text says that he was ravaging the church. He was seeking to destroy the church. And we come to find in Acts chapter 9 in the first two verses that Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It's estimated that these events occurred about one to three years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so you can see that Saul has been on a crusade against Jesus for months, if not years at this point. That takes a lot of endurance to keep up on that much and that kind of hostility for that long. Saul is certainly a man on a mission to snuff out the name of Jesus and all who follow him. He's on what I would label a crusade. Now, you might think it's odd that I use the word crusade because a lot of believers actually have a positive association with that word, but If you were to look up the definition, one definition that I found says that a a crusade is to lead or take part in an energetic and organized campaign concerning a social, political, or religious issue. Saul very much is leading an energetic and organized campaign against Christianity. And he's doing this because in his mind, this is the right thing to do. You see, Saul is the ideal Jewish man. He is the perfect Jew. You couldn't be a better Jew than Saul. And his zeal for Judaism is is actually why he embarks on such a crusade. He actually says this himself later on. He'll go on to write a letter called Galatians. We call it Galatians. And in Galatians 1, verses 13 through 14, this is what Saul says. Take a look at it. 
He writes, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. In that passage, Saul is associating his persecution for the church with his zeal for Judaism. Saul's Jewish understanding of God, his monotheistic understanding of God, seems to be at odds with Christians. His monotheistic understanding of God would come from Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so in Saul's mind, there is no room for a man named Jesus who claims divinity. And such heresy should be stamped out. As time passes on this crusade, uh, you would think that perhaps that after Saul had arrested many believers, that this would satisfy his craving, right? Or that uh, eventually he would grow exhausted and just give up. He would lose that zeal, that over time his fervor and his zeal would wane. But in verse 1 and 2, it certainly gives us the indication that Saul's enthusiasm hasn't diminished. If anything, it's intensified. Because we see as the message of the gospel spreads, so does the reach of Saul's persecution. Saul catches wind that there are believers in Damascus. Damascus is a city 135 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And because there are believers there, Saul makes plans to go to Damascus. And he's so passionate about this crusade that he's going to jump through the hoops necessary to ensure its success. He goes to the high priest and he asks for these letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Essentially, these are documents of extradition. These are documents that give him the authority to seek out what in his mind are criminals in Damascus and return them as prisoners to Jerusalem. The point of this section, the point of these first two verses, is to show us how far away Saul is from Jesus and the Father's will. How great a chasm there is between Saul and Jesus. You can't get further away from Jesus than where Saul is right now. From a human perspective and understanding, we can look at a lot of people in our life, especially in a postmodern context, and say, well, they're, they're certainly not for Jesus, but they're, they're not necessarily advocating against him. You probably have many friends and family who are just sort of indifferent to Jesus and his ways. But in Saul's case, this isn't someone who is merely indifferent. No, this man is an active agent against the ways of Jesus. Jesus is his enemy, and he would take pride in that claim. You see, the last thing that Saul ever intended to do was to become a Christ follower. If you knew Saul in this time, you would identify him as the last person on earth that would or even could submit to Jesus. 
In our own vocabulary, we would look at Saul in the news and we would say, well, it's certainly going to take an act of God to transform Saul. And fortunately for him, that's exactly what happens in verses 3 through 9 as we read about Saul's conversion. Saul's conversion in verses 3 through 9. As Saul and his entourage are traveling down the road to Damascus, a powerful light from heaven burst around him. This, this light is so strong and so intense that it just throws them all to the ground. It's noon. It's about noon. And this is Jesus' glory that's outshining the midday sun. Saul is seeing the glory of Jesus all around. And this is... What we would call a fancy word for this is what we would call a Christophany. A Christophany is a visible manifestation of Jesus. The main idea to understand about this Christophany, this manifestation of Jesus, is that this was an event. This wasn't merely a vision in Saul's eyes, but something actually took place. Something actually occurred that the others that were with Saul could testify to. Verse 7 actually speaks to, to, to their response. It says that they were speechless, right? They had no clue what was going on. They had no clue at what just happened, but they knew something happened. Now, this is an important point to make, and I make it often because it's critical that we understand this and we understand the world from God's perspective. This is important because as you search out Scripture, you will find that God's approach to salvation is always through events. That's why we refer to God's work as salvation history, because God acts through redemptive events. The exodus out of Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the, the giving of the law, the delivery into the promised land, the incarnation of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, Pentecost, and someday the, the, the coming, the second coming of Jesus as our King. These are all historical events. Christianity is based on objective historical events. In this particular event, in the life of Saul, in Acts 9, Saul uh, hears the voice calling out to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul doesn't know this is Jesus at this point. We do. Hindsight is twenty twenty, And the question in and of itself shows Jesus's solidarity with the church. While Saul is hitting the church, as people have said, Jesus is feeling the pain. To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. It's like when you hurt my family, whether it be physical, mental, or emotional, I am going to feel that pain as a father to my children and as a husband to my wife. In response to this, of course, Saul seeks to uh, identify uh, the voice. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? His use of that title, Lord, in this instance, is not meant to declare submission, but rather it is a term of high respect for this obviously, uh, this obvious heavenly one. 
And then it's significant as Christ replies. Notice that he doesn't reply with a divine title, but instead he uses his earthly name. I am Jesus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. By using his human name instead of a divine title, Jesus is leaving no room for Saul to deny that it's actually him. As Saul is blinded by the light physically, everything would come into focus for him spiritually at that response. Jesus was alive. Saul vehemently rejected Jesus, adamantly denied him as God, spent his life crusading against him, and now Jesus has shown up and is showing off his glory in Saul's very presence. There's too much evidence for Saul to return to his former way. And I love the picture that we get in verse 8, as it says that as Saul rose from the ground, although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. Now this was, this clearly describes his physical state, the state of his physical blindness. It's speaking that his, his eyelids were physically open, yet he was blind. However, there does seem to be a little bit of a play on words here. Yes, he is physically blind. He physically cannot see, but his eyes were opened. He's getting a physical taste for what he was like spiritually. He was spiritually blind, but in a few days, his sight will be restored just as his spiritual sight is restored. The next time he sees with his eyes, He will see a world not as he did before, but as Jesus sees the world. Because from a spiritual standpoint, his eyes were opened. And as his spiritual sight is uh, restored, we'll take note that it's not because of anything that Saul did. Right? It's not, it's not because he had some kind of internal change that he managed to do on his own, an internal change of heart or a change of mind necessarily. No, remember, he was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christ followers. No, Saul is not restored because of any action that happens within him, but actually action that happens outside of him specifically the intervention of Jesus Christ. Saul, is, is, his eyes are spiritually opened because of the intervention of Jesus Christ. If there's one word that I want you to remember today, if you are taking notes or if you jot down just only one word, the word that I want you to write down and remember is this word intervention. The theme of every single believer who has ever walked the earth, including Saul, is that Jesus intervenes. Jesus intervenes. Transformation, conversion, is a result of divine intervention. We were going our own way. We were walking away from God. We were walking away from his ways. All mankind falls into that category. 
I know I mentioned this earlier about how there are people who are just indifferent to Jesus, but the reality is, is that Jesus draws a line in the sand and he tells us, you are either for me or you are against me. You are either part of my family or you are my enemy. So in a very real sense, from God's perspective, we are all in Saul's position. In our sin, we reject God. In our sin, we are against God. But then God intervenes. As we are walking away from him, God intervenes and snatches you up and says, this one's mine. God initiated your salvation by calling your name out of the darkness. In our text, Jesus initiates the encounter that results in Saul's conversion. Saul did absolutely nothing to merit salvation. I believe that it was the Puritan Jonathan Edwards who said that you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And Saul goes on to affirm this when he's writing to his apprentice, Timothy, later on in life. First uh, Timothy 1, verses 15 through 16. Once again, this is Saul writing. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world. Or in other words, Jesus intervened into the world. Why? To save sinners of whom I am the worst. Why would Jesus intervene and save the worst of sinners? Saul goes on to write, For that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Saul is saying, I am an example of Christ's perfect patience. If there is anybody in this world that shouldn't receive Jesus' mercy, it's me because I am the worst of sinners. But let my story bear testimony that when you submit to him and when you repent and turn towards him, his mercy is far greater than anything you could ever do against him. His grace and mercy saturates everything you've ever done in rebellion towards him. There is no amount of distance that I can be from Jesus that his grace and mercy can't reach because Saul was as far away from him as you can get. And Jesus still called him out of the darkness and transformed him. And we begin to see the fruit of the transformation, his transformation in verse 9 as he's fasting from food and water for three days. And later on we find out that he's praying. This is an intense type of fast that people would only do if they were repenting or seeking God's will. This is an act of humility and submission on Saul's part. And in this brief verse, verse 9, we notice a change in Paul. This is not the same man that we read about in verses 1 and 2. Now, I've made mention in past sermons that when you are reconciled to Jesus, you are also reconciled to the church, to everybody else naturally. 
as you are unified to Christ, you are inherently unified to the universal body of believers, which is why Luke includes, I believe, verses 10 through 19 in this story. We need to see Saul's connection to the body of Christ. Saul is probably in the most vulnerable position of his life as he's fasting for three days. He's had a lot of time to think. And, you know, Saul is not stupid. He knows exactly how this is going to look to other believers. How on earth is he going to explain himself? He's probably sitting there in his own mind thinking, how could they possibly receive a man like me? I know Jesus receives me, but there's a very good chance that they as a community will not. How traumatizing it can be for one who has been received by Jesus, but rejected by his bride, the church. And if we're honest, we wouldn't blame the community of believers in that time for having some reservations. They're concern with Saul is not without good cause. And so Jesus appears to a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and he instructs him to go to Saul. And Ananias says, wait, hold up, Jesus. I've, I've heard about this guy. I know exactly why he's here. He's come to arrest us. Ananias rightfully has some concerns and doubts about Saul's presence in Damascus. And Jesus then explains, no, no, Ananias. He is my chosen instrument. I have intervened in his life, and he is my chosen instrument, and I am going to use him, and so you don't have to be afraid. And so Ananias obeys and goes to Saul. Now imagine the ramifications of this. Let me paint the picture for you. Imagine with me, the despair and the loneliness and the disappointment in Saul's heart as he anticipates Christians rejecting him. He's once again sitting there saying, how on earth could they possibly receive a sinner like me? And one of the very first things that Saul hears from the mouth of a believer in verse 17 is brother Saul. Brother Saul. Ananias comes into the room and says, brother Saul. And he lays hands on him. This this carries some weight right now for us because we're not allowed to lay our hands on anybody. You read this, as I was reading this, I'm thinking, whoa, Ananias, where's your social distancing, right? Here, how about you take some hand sanitizer while you're at it? As Ananias lays his hands on Saul, though, there's this just gentle, warm embrace that a lot of us are missing out on right now. And so you can see the significance for somebody like Saul who, who has rejected Jesus and is, is out to arrest and kill and he's breathing murderous threats against these believers. And then the very first believer that he meets after his conversion lays his hands on him and says, Brother Saul. A warm embrace. 
just last week I ran into one of the old, our older members of the church whom I'm very close with. And as we spoke for several minutes, she asked, is, is it okay if I hug you? Are you comfortable with that? Because she craved the physical connection that comes with being connected to the body of Christ. The warm embrace of a brother in Christ. These verses clearly demonstrate that Saul is now connected to the fellowship of believers. I love what one of the commentators I'm using, what he writes on the passage. He, he says, the arch enemy of the church was welcomed as a brother. The dreaded fanatic was received as a member of the family. Imagine laying your hands on someone who you knew had been on his way to arrest you. There you see the love of the encourager reaching out to a new believer in spite of his past. Oh, how believers could learn from Ananias in receiving those who were lost but now found. Our grace should mimic that of Jesus' grace. And part of the reason, as I mentioned before, that Ananias was comfortable in embracing Saul in the way that he does is because Jesus explains what Saul's purpose is to Ananias. Which brings us to the final section, the final point on our roadmap, Saul's commission in verses 15 through 16. Jesus tells Ananias, Saul is my chosen instrument to carry my name out into the rest of the world. And then he goes on to make the point that he will suffer in this mission. He will know how much he has to suffer for my name, for my name's sake. Now, this is not to say that Saul is somehow being punished, but rather how costly it will be to be God's vessel. Jesus says, Saul, I have handpicked you myself to play a specific role in the advancement of the gospel. How encouraging it is that Saul isn't some sort of throwaway believer. It's not as if Jesus said, all right, Saul, I've intervened in your life. I've saved you. And now get out of my way so I can work. Get out of my way because I have no longer have a purpose uh, for you. I've, I've thrown you a bone and now, now be gone. Go away. No, Saul, I have chosen you. As I have formed you over the years and I've, I have gifted you with the, the many talents, the, the, they, they were all given to you for such a time as this. Your intellect, your zeal, your leadership, all of those character qualities that you used to persecute me, all of those characteristics will now be used to proclaim my name and my glory. You see, in this passage, we see that conversion and commission go hand in hand. Now, Saul had a very specific commission, unique to him. However, we must understand that we, uh, that, that as believers, we too are under commission. God has gifted you and created you and knitted you in your mother's womb in order to be used, in order to be his chosen instrument. 
that you cannot separate conversion and commission. You were brought into the fold so that you may be equipped and then sent out. You, you, you have been brought in to be sent out, to go out again where the lost are. One illustration I've heard is that this is like a tornado of grace. Right? You, you are sucked into the, the tornado of grace, and then you are subsequently hurled back out uh, so that you may proclaim the name of Jesus. As you are brought into the family, you are called once more to go into the world again and do ministry. And once again, Saul himself affirms this as he writes Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. This is what he would later go on to write. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. That's conversion, right? For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's commission. Conversion and commission go together. And God, as the master architect, orchestrates it all. He looks at you and says, as I have intervened in your life, As I have broken through the barrier of your sin, you are my chosen instrument to go and do good works. And the best part about it is that God has gone ahead of us and has prepared a way for us to do it to ensure its success and effectiveness. Saul would go on to fulfill his commission. And he would become one of the most prominent and influential individuals in Christianity. From this point on, his presence dominates the rest of the New Testament. Even secular historians would regard this event as one of the most crucial events in history. And I say this not to put Saul on a pedestal. He would be disappointed with me if I did. At the end of the day, this story isn't about Saul. It's about how God, who by his perfect grace and mercy, can take the hardest of hearts and soften them, can reach out to those who are furthest away from them and bring them in. Jesus, who is so rich in mercy, is willing to forgive his enemy who persecutes him and then transforms him and then launches him into the battlefield as a warrior for the gospel. This is the transforming power of the gospel, and only the gospel has that kind of power. There is not a single person who walks this earth that is too far gone to receive Jesus' forgiveness. We cannot receive, uh, you cannot look to a single person and say that they are a hopeless cause. That there's no hope. And so I wonder, is there a Saul of Tarsus out there right now listening to this uh, in this moment? Listening to this right now? Do you hear God in this moment calling you out of darkness? If you hear his voice, if you feel that draw, that pull, towards Jesus, it's time to respond. It's time to turn from your former way of life 
that rejected Jesus and turned toward him in submission and repentance. And he has promised that if you turn to him, he has promised to forgive you, to receive you, and then to use you as a chosen instrument. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your amazing, unfathomable love that has been poured out for us at the cross and poured into us by the Holy Spirit. We praise you, Lord, that while your son Jesus meets us where we are in our sin, he doesn't let us stay there. You have so much more to offer than this broken and messed up world. As we are your handiwork, help us embrace the role that you have called us into and have prepared for us in advance. And in your son Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.